3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past, present and emerging of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You are listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. The time is 7 o'clock. In the studio, we have me and we have Anya, because George the Lucky Duck gets to go away with her family for a little bit, which is always a lot of fun. So who knows, maybe she's dialing in right now. Hi, George. Hi, George. (laughs) (laughs) She's not dialing in. (laughs) George, our only listener for today. Anyway, how are you, Zoya? I'm good. I'm good. I had a lovely weekend, although I avoided the uh, the crowds and didn't didn't end up going to Midsummer, though I know that a few other people did. Did you go to Midsummer, Anya? I uh, no, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> you also avoided the crowds. Well, I avoided the carnival, um, but I did go to a few after parties afterwards, which yeah. um, which was fun. Well, it was meant to rain. Yes, it but was. it didn't. It was. Did it? Didn't rain at all on Sunday. Uh, I think towards the end of the day. It threatened weirdly, right? Like it was it was really kind of this strange feeling in the air that something was going to happen. It was kind of like you sort of almost realised your, your animal nature when you could like feel the, the electricity in the air with the storm about to come that never quite hit. It was really strange. Um, anyway, speaking of weather, the weather today is going to be quite lovely. It's... Um, 15 degrees at the moment, but there's going to be a high of 22, and it is becoming sunny, apparently, which is nice. And um, as, as we did last week, the air quality um, index uh, forecast is looking pretty good. It's green all day, so green meaning good. So go out there, open your, open your windows if you're at home, do your washing and hanging up because the mm. sheets won't smell like smoke so you know use the time <laughs> yeah yeah totally yeah i don't know it's just i, I still can't believe this comes anyway that's a really boring conversation about <laughs> because we always say i can't believe it's come to this and it's like the equivalent the melbourne equivalent now of speaking about the weather is more going i can't believe this is what we have to say when we speak about the weather yeah i know actually talking about it. i was watching that um that movie interstellar yesterday mm. 2014 film um, but it starts with, you know, the end, the end of the world, basically. And everyone's wearing masks and all these dust storms are happening. And I was just like, this is too real. Yeah. I mean, what was it? It was down in near Dubbo. They mm. had the biggest dust storm dust storm, yeah. seen ever, basically. Yeah. It was, I saw a video of it. It was terrifying because the, the, the weather forecast was actually for, um, for rain. And then all of a sudden this dust storm comes through it was it was just utterly utterly terrifying yeah anyway so on to on to more probably doom and gloom um on the note of climate we have some news headlines the first of which is climate related so i think it was just yesterday the uh human rights committee um the un human rights committee 
has actually ruled that it's unlawful for governments to return people to countries where their lives might be threatened by the climate crisis. Um, and this is a really big piece of news because it's expected that in the next decade, you know, tens of millions of people are going to be displaced because of climate change. Um, one of the biggest ones being rising sea levels. So, um, you know, this, this is actually related to a rising sea level issue because in 2013, um, a Kiribati man, um, Ioana Te Toa, um, applied for a protection visa to New Zealand. And New Zealand rejected that application. And it was on the basis of rising sea levels, forcing more kind of population density on the main island of Kiribati because um, other islands have become basically uninhabitable. The rising salinity of the water table is making growing crops really hard. There's, there's just it's just an impending crisis there. Um, the UN Human Rights Committee looked at that um, uh, Rejection because um, Taito, uh, um, uh, Taito, Taito, ta, sorry, um, uh, applied to the Human Rights Committee to have a look at it. They upheld New Zealand's rejection because they didn't deem his situation to be one of immediate danger. They said that there's 10 to 15 years that this could be resolved. So in reality, Kiribati could actually address this issue. So um, he and his family aren't an immediate threat. So it doesn't constitute um, uh, a true um, uh, need for protection. Um, but in their statement, they did clarify the roles and responsibilities of states to not return people if their lives are at risk because of climate-induced changes. So that effectively, they've determined immediate climate, climate, immediate danger as a result of climate-induced changes to be reason to apply for protection, which is quite big news. Um, I mean, obviously, in reality, international law doesn't actually have, like, it's relatively toothless. States can still just do whatever they want. But... Um, it's it's still showing that that we're moving towards a space where um, where being a climate refugee is is a, is a is a is a genuine reason to be a refugee and to get protection from another state. So, I mean, that's you know looking forward. That's like a that's that's a huge piece of news, and it seems like that's going to be our next our next big global movement, I suppose, is climate refugees. Um, which, I mean, we've already got that here in Australia. We have internal climate refugees. And, yeah, it's just sad and terrifying. Um, looking at some other not-so-fun news as well, and unfortunately, unlike last week and the news of Jonathan Van Ness's guinea pig, non-binary guinea pig children's book, I neglected to get a good piece of news. <laughs> But perhaps when we're playing a song or something like that, I'll have a look and try and find something nice and light and bright to brighten our morning. But uh, next piece of news, the protests in India. Whilst there isn't anything immediate that's happened, I thought we'd just sort of touch on the protests in India because it's still something that's ongoing. They've been going on for more than a, mo for more, more than a month now. They started last, last month. Um, these are protests um, against the um, Citizenship Amendment Act um, enacted by Modi's BJP party, which is effectively saying that um, people in 
states around India can um, apply for and get Indian citizenship um, if they are, um, it's effectively like a refugee kind of situation, but it's only if they aren't Muslim, which, um, you know, excludes a number of different Muslim minorities that might be looking for, for protection. So whilst it's meant to be a humanitarian kind of movement, in reality, it's an anti-Muslim amendment or anti-Muslim piece of legislation. Um, so there's been quite a few protests all across India. They started up, up in the northeast, I think in Assam originally, but they've just kind of exploded across India and are still going on. Many of them are being led by women. Many of them are being led by students. Um, and significantly, it's not just Muslims who are engaging in these protests. So there have been solidarity protests led by students um, from non-Muslim majority or Muslim-run universities that have sprung up in response to violence enacted by the government against students at Muslim-majority universities, in particular one in Delhi, the name of which I'm afraid I cannot recall right now, um, which happened last month. Um, in addition, there are quite a few protests um, taking place um, uh, in Delhi, including um, a sit-in in Shaheen Bagh, which is a Muslim-majority part of Delhi. This is a woman-led protest. Um, most recently, they've started a campaign where people are writing uh, postcards to Narendra Modi, outlining their fears and their concerns. Um, these postcards were all gathered together and were sent yesterday to Modi as like a, a big sort of peaceful um, act of act of awareness raising um, obviously this hasn't all been peaceful and largely the violence has been on the part of the government and more than 30 people have died so far in protests across the country so it's quite a significant number these protests are quite interesting because it's kind of like with, with the Occupy movement um, you know in you know the US in London here because uh, it's very very organic and there's no like one epicenter of organisation for these protests and uh, one interesting thing is that these aren't just connected with the Citizenship Amendment Act. That's just one part of it. There's also these two other things that Modi's government want to bring through. And one of them is um, the biggest thing they want is something called the National Register of Citizens. So they basically want to have a list of people who are Indian citizens. Now, we might think that this, might, this is kind of like, all right, yeah, fair enough, it's a National Register of Citizens. But... There's a couple of things at play here. The first one being that in India, there are a lot of people who don't have that documentation. They're just in India. Um, you know, they may have been born in rural areas. They may be older and may have lost their um, their documents. Things, you know, things, you know, when partition happened, there was a huge amount of upheaval. There's been upheaval throughout India's history that have meant for a variety of different reasons, administrative, historical, political, people don't have documents. And if they are Muslim, that could be really hard for them to prove that they should be here, should be in India and um, haven't, say, come across from Pakistan in the past 10 years or whatever, looking for work or for whatever, whatever reason. I'm just using that as an example because it's, you know, one of the concerns that a lot of the Hindu nationalists have as around around the world going, these people coming here, taking our jobs. So there's this real fear that Muslims who are Indian and have always been living in India, because India has more Muslims in it than in Pakistan, for example, um, there's a real concern that they may not be um, recognized as citizens. So that's that's really quite worrying. And as part of that, 
there's kind of like almost a step towards that. And of course, when we start on top of that, when we start writing down people and people's religions and people's locations, there's a lot going on there, especially when it's a Hindu nationalist group who are trying to do that. That that doesn't really feel like it's necessarily a friendly, just happy, oh, we just want to know what our people are doing kind of thing. There's, some, there's something scary going on there. Um, what's happening before that um, National Register of Citizens, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, people who are against that, so it's quite difficult for Modi, for BJP to push that through. What they want to do is have something called the National Population Register, which they're saying is just basically shoring up the census and making the census more effective. But in reality, a lot of people are saying it's a first step towards having a national register of citizens. So it's, it's you know, you're just slowly moving the goalposts until it's like, well, we, we've got all the information now. Let's just bring it together and make a national register. It's not all of India that is in support of this. Obviously, we've had the protests going on. But at the political level, um, the states of Kerala and West Bengal have expressed opposition to all three of these reforms, the Citizenship Amendment Act, the National Population Register and the National Register of Citizens. On top of that, um, Congress, which is the main opposition party in India and who were in power in India for quite a long time, and they um, lost power quite, in quite a big landslide against the BJP a few years ago. Um, they hold power in five states and territories and are in a coalition in another one. And they've also expressed opposition towards the National Population Register. They haven't necessarily come out totally against the Citizenship Amendment Act, but they're against the National Population Register, which, is, which, as I said, is the step towards the National Register of Citizens. But amongst all the other disparate opposition parties, and even to an extent within Congress, there's a lot of back and forth about where they stand around all of these. So there isn't like a full united front against this clear BJP majority. So whether or not the um, rumblings at the leadership level um, or at the sort of governmental level um, is enough to push back against the BJP drive for these citizenship things that that have a potential to have quite dramatic, dramatic impact on Muslims in India is is yet to be seen. So that's my little explainer on the India protests at a whole bunch of different levels. And um, as things shift and move, uh, we'll uh, we'll keep you updated. And that's the news headlines from Zoya. Thank you, Zoya. <laughs> So we have quite a big show today. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe first we'll start by playing some um, audio about um, the concept of paying the rent, which is something I'm sure our listeners all know quite a bit about. Um, but without going too much into detail, I think we'll just play the audio first mm. and then we'll have a discussion about that later. My pop's been saying pay the rent since I was a little kid. If we wanted to do this, we could afford to do it. My name is Luke Curry Richardson. I'm a descendant of the Kukiyalanji and Jabukai people, Mananjali people of Southeast Queensland and Bachelor mob from Fraser Island, and also the Miriam people in the Torres Strait. Eight weeks ago, I was asked to be a part of a documentary about reparations. In other words, paying the rent to Indigenous Australians. Eight weeks ago, I had no idea what reparations even meant, despite the fact that some of my mob have been calling for the rent to be paid for decades. But I do know about rent. I'm an artist and a storyteller, and I rent a one-bedroom apartment in Darlinghurst, Sydney. I don't own my home yet, but I'd like to one day. And if I did buy in Sydney, 
it'd be on Gadigal land, yet not a single cent will go to Gadigal mob. Traditional owners don't get to profit much from their land. It was taken without payment, but what if we all had to pay to live on Gadigal, Noongar, Yorta Yorta or Murray land? I'm willing to pay the rent. Are you? In 2018, Australian households were named the wealthiest in the whole world. And a large portion of that wealth stems from assets, specifically property value. Australia is a wealthy country, and a big part of that wealth has been built on Aboriginal land. I'm going to take you on a journey with me to find out more about reparations. I'm going to talk to experts, and I'm going to ask Australians property-owning Australians if they're ready and willing to pay the rent. This is not about handouts, and it's not just about money. It's about acknowledging this country's past, like they've done in South Africa, New Zealand, Canada, Haiti, the US, and other places. Reparations is nothing new. We just don't talk about it enough here, yet. The first thing I needed to do was to understand what reparations can be. So, I sat down with Andrea Durback. She is a South African human rights law professor and someone I knew would get me started on my journey. There are a number of categories that really speak to what reparations are. So it's an apology, a compensation, which is usually monetary compensation, restitution, which is giving people back their land, their language, their culture, uh, rehabilitation, which is where people have suffered physically or emotionally, and lastly, a guarantee against repetition of those violations of human rights. In really simple terms, reparations is to be sorry and to do sorry. And that can consist of paying monetary compensation for the past wrongs. When BuzzFeed asked me to work with them on this documentary, I must admit I was a little cautious. But they put me in touch with Alex Kelly, a filmmaker from Alice Springs. She's done a lot of research and I'm hoping she can help me understand what mainstream Australia thinks about paying the rent. Is it possible that Australians will be up for contributing part of their property tax dollars to a reparation scheme? Fortunately, there are people that know way more about this pay the rent stuff than I do. So I asked Alex to talk to Richard Dennis to find out if a property tax is the best way to fund a reparation scheme. And I caught up with Gamilaroi woman, Natalie Crom. Natalie comes from a legal background and has been writing about this stuff for a while. I think in Australian politics we've seen a lot of symbolism um, that was never backed up by action. We still talk about Paul Keating's Redfern speech which was incredible, it was pivotal. We cannot give Indigenous Australians up without giving up many of our own deeply held values, much of our identity and indeed our own humanity. But there was no real political action after that that's made any meaningful change and any any progressive politicians that try to implement change for our benefit gets clawed back by the next government. We apologise for the laws and policies of successive parliaments and governments that have inflicted profound grief, suffering and loss on these our fellow Australians. We're constantly stuck between these either or arguments between two major parties and neither of them actually have long-term strategic outlooks for the benefit of us because they're not actually talking to us. Everything is about us without us. Do you think it's a pipe dream that we're, we're trying to, you know, trying to get here, like the whole reparations and pay the rent? Do you think it's a pipe or could it work in Australia? 
I think it could work in Australia, but it takes the right mindset. And I think that um, given that for over 230 years it's been breadcrumbs and we're supposed to feel grateful for it, why not shoot for absolutely what we're entitled to? Natalie isn't exactly filling me with optimism here, but it's nice to know that she doesn't think reparations is just a pipe dream. And from what Richard told Alex, it's not a new idea either. The idea of paying reparations, the idea of, uh, of, of, of formally setting out compensation to groups who've been uh, displaced is, is, is hardly a new one and it's, it's hardly a radical one, but in Australia obviously it's, it's, it's been a very controversial one and I guess that stems back to the fact that for so long uh, Australians pretended that terra nullius was, uh, that terra nullius was a useful concept. Australia, we, we start with denial, and that's 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 not the most helpful place to start. I think the conversation we need to have is: should we be looking at this? And if people agree we should, then we can start a conversation about how. And after we've done the should, and after we've done the how, then we can have a conversation about how you might fund that. I wanted to ask about where you see this conversation sitting in the kind of broader national conversation so you know in terms of how you think about the way in which neoliberalism frames debates in Australia how do you think a conversation about reparations would sit in that kind of economic climate? Unfortunately I think the you know the Australians have been trained to believe that we're broke we're trained to believe that government spending on anything is inefficient and wasteful uh, and a lot of people have been uh, trained to believe that the collection of taxation revenue is, is inherently harmful to the economy. So, yeah, I think that neoliberal frame of reference makes this debate uh, harder than it needs to be. I've seen Australians rally for our mob in the past, but getting people to engage in an open debate about reparations is going to be real hard. When we asked people on Facebook what they thought of a pay-the-rent scheme, it was tough reading. One person wrote, nothing they get enough handouts from the taxes we pay already. And another person wrote, I think that we've already paid them far too much. Get off your bums and work. This sort of commentary is nothing new to me, but how do we get beyond it? Some people were more supportive. This user wrote, my housemates and I collectively donate $100 a month to VACCHO as rent for living on stolen land. We'd participate in some kind of formal reparation scheme as well. I, I want to see communities thrive, not survive. I think that we need to pursue the hardest line and hope that we get enough traction with relevant people so that um, we continue creating attention and having the rest of Australia want to join, join the conversation and say, you know what, we did actually do wrong, it's time for us to pay the rent and how, what does that look like? So do you talk about this with your non-Indigenous friends and, and family as well? Um, how would I approach that without people getting angry or, or sad? Or... I think if, if you make it clear that, you know, it's not about white guilt or anything like that, you know, we're not asking people to feel guilty about history. We're asking people to check their privilege and use it for us because the government is never going to hand anything to us without us fighting for it. And we need allies who want to do right and want to be on the right side of history.
we can talk and talk and protest all we want, but it's the the help from the non-indigenous side that's really vital, basically. Yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. We're less than three percent of the population, so if it's just left up to us, change is never going to come. How do you think we would reach the majority of Australians agreeing that this was a necessarily process to engage in. No one knows. Uh, look how long it took to get same-sex marriage up in Australia and look how tortuous that process was. I think we can unfortunately expect the same might occur when we're talking about something like uh, the provision of reparations. But I think the main thing we have to do is, is take the question back to its simple moral one. Um, do people think what happened and the way it happened, in hindsight, uh, was the right thing to occur? I'm going to go and talk to um, some property owners here in Sydney and ask them this question. Are they willing to or ready to pay the tax, uh, pay the rent, sorry? Yeah. Uh, what, what, how should I approach it if they go, why would I pay for something that happened so long ago? I think... Um, common, common, common argument. Why? Yeah. It's not my fault. It happened all that, those years ago. Yeah, that's, that's the common argument. I think you approach them by giving them an analogy. What would you expect if someone squatted in one of your properties and did so unlawfully with full flagrance to the law of their own and, and the adopted country? They'd expect to have rent, yeah. right? So, you know, we're not asking for them to pay 230 years of rent. We're asking them to establish a fund in order for each community to be able to self-govern and self-sustain without having to ask for breadcrumbs off the table. Help bridge that gap, eh? Yeah. Help bridge that gap. Yeah. I, I hope you um, managed to make an impact in the minds of the non-Indigenous mob. Me too, fingers crossed. Yeah, you go. Someone that's been there for me throughout all my ups and downs is my partner, Ellie. She's been hearing little bits about my journey so far but I wanted to sit down and chat with her as one of the people closest to me to see what she thought about it all. I feel bad not knowing about it. Well, it's not actually being spoken about. Right. Have you heard about reparations before? Well, I actually kind of hadn't until, you know, you started talking about it. I guess I have questions about, you know, who would get the money and then who decides on, you know, what to do with the money. Yeah. But then again, I don't know how it works in other places either. Early conversations I had about reparations, people kept coming back to overseas examples. Canada's Stolen Generations Fund and South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, for example. You know, I think what the South African experience showed me is I never, and I say this to many of my colleagues here in Australia, I never in my lifetime believed that democracy would come to my country, South Africa. I never believed Mandela would be released, Nelson Mandela would be released from prison in my lifetime. And yet it happened. And so while what you and I have been talking about can be quite dispiriting, there's always that little sense I always have that knocks me on the head and says, remember, you never thought that change would come to your country in your lifetime or that Nelson Mandela would be president. And hey, it's happened. Andrea told me that reparations in South Africa didn't fully work but that there is a new push to get something happening. So it seems the most successful example people keep talking about is New Zealand's Waitangi Tribunal. So I lined up a chat with Dr Anaru Irurati. The journey that I've had with working on Māori rights and working on international Indigenous rights, I always see a lot of Australians, right? 
So this morning we went to a going away. It was the last day for Professor. He was leaving. He's had an amazing career, and he he was working for the local tribal people at Bastion Point in Auckland for their land claim. Um, and then it brought to mind the Aboriginal Embassy in Canberra. So this was all happening around about the same time in the mid to late 70s. So when the tent embassy was getting set up, which I understand was kind of a reaction to the land policies of the government at the time, um, there was the major occupation at Bastion Point, and they were both kind of pivotal moments in our shared history, in the history of yeah. New Zealand and Australia. For you know, it was a very um, strong movement, very about self-determination, um, about yep. political autonomy not just land rights uh, and that's how our movement kicked off in New Zealand and I think in Australia too. Going back to um, Bastion Point, right, the, the occupation of that land, it was, it was uh, integral to the, is it what I've learnt, to Waitangi Tribunal? Yes, yeah that's right. Could you uh, teach me more about that? I've got a brief understanding mm. but how, that, how did that come about? Yeah. And, yeah. Basically, just briefly what it is, it's an, it's an inquiry, a commission of inquiry so it's not like a court, you know, so you don't have strong forms of cross-examination. It's about trying to find the truth. Um, and it's looking into basically historical injustices that occurred um, right back to 1840 when the Treaty of Waitangi was signed. But then in 1985, they gave it jurisdiction to look all the way back to 1840 and that just opened it all up completely. And that was the significant moment where the tribunal could look at you know, land takings that occurred in 1865 or earlier or in the 1970s uh, and, and that meant that we were forced to basically look at this dark part of our, our history, right, that not a lot of people knew about. They knew that the Māori were here first and land was taken and there were injustices, but, but these inquiries were into specific tribal claims to specific areas of land and they produced reports which documented what happened and they made recommendations for redress. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's, you see it's really important part of our healing process. Do you think reparations has made a difference? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's made a difference. It's cathartic and healing uh, economically. Yeah. Tribes are more empowered. That's that self-determination you're talking about. Well, self-determination, yeah. Move towards self-determination. Um, they're, they're, it's enacted codes which foster greater participation in decisions relating to environment, a whole range of different matters. So it's been, it's been key, I think. Not everyone would, would agree with that, right? Like if you, if you, if you Google treaty settlements, you'll find a lot of people who critique it, and for good reason. It's not perfect. But I think yeah. overall, it's unique. It's been really important part of, of, of healing and honouring and respecting the injustices of the past and also building a base for the future, economically and politically, I think. I think it's been very important. Yeah. At the best of times, Australians hate paying tax. They love the way of living here. They love how great life is in Australia, roads and everything, but they hate paying tax. So why would they pay a tax that doesn't benefit them, doesn't benefit their roads, doesn't be it benefits 3% of the population? Why, why would they? Like, I know I would because I come from a minority within this country and I would pay elsewhere, mm -hmm. but, but why would 
a non-indigenous person, you know, that doesn't directly benefit with this, hate it. Like we do have a couple of friends that have just bought places, a place to live, and you know, we watched other friends try to find a place that was affordable, you know, and they work as actors and actresses and other like dancers that live nearby. Because a lot of our friends are minorities already, you know. Yeah, that already can't get. I think if they had the money on the artist salary, I think if they could afford a house, I think they would be happy to pay it. When we started making this documentary, the plan was to speak with a lot of property owners around Sydney, just to ask them what they thought about a pay the rent tax. Marina Go agreed to talk with us, so I went and had a yarn with her at her house in Rose Bay, Sydney. When you first bought your first property, the idea of paying a voluntary reparations property tax, mm. would you have paid it back then? Or so when I, when I first bought my property, um, I'm just trying to think what year it may have been. It was, I think it was late 80s. Um, and I was, I've always, I've always been a person yeah. who cares about um, social justice. Okay. Yep. So for me, the whole concept of inequality is a real is just an atom I can't I, I get really upset about it so yes I would have absolutely I do live in this one bedroom apartment Darlinghurst don't own it still paying rent on my my art, artistic wage uh, <laughs> my artist wage with my partner um, and you did say that you would pay a, a reparation property tax I find that the world is away from where we are right now with this beautiful backyard swimming pool house um, compared to my little square box over in Darlinghurst and it's it's easy to say that you have the money I guess to, to pay that tax what would what would you say to people like me a struggling artist that's well that's why I think it, there needs to be some sort of equity yeah. uh, applied to this and so and, and it may well be a percentage or something yeah. and it cuts in at a certain point um, which is which is basically how all taxes work anyway, I think, in Australia. So I can't imagine it would just be a one-size-fits-all sort of tax. Um, but I do think it, there needs to be some sort of system where everybody feels like they're contributing. That's my only yeah, point where I think, even if it's a small amount, I feel like everybody should should contribute in some way because um, everyone... It's the only way you're going to bring the whole country together around this concept of reparation for First Nations people. No one else said yes to our requests to film with them in their homes. One couple who live in Balmain told us to support the idea but don't want to say the wrong thing. How do we start having a conversation about reparations and pay the rent if people are too hesitant to talk? I haven't given up on Australians. I feel like, I feel like you know, we've, we've had a few road bumps yep. um, as a nation. We haven't always, you know, we don't have a wonderful history always yep. um, and particularly when it comes to First Nations people. But, um, but I, do, I do believe that people are inherently good um, and if they have the right information and they're aware of yeah. the issues, um, then the people will make the right decision. Yeah. I think what the biggest, uh, one, one of the things that I've discovered is that we haven't had this history, but we're also not owning up to it at this point in time. We had the, we had the apology with uh, Prime Minister Rudd, but we haven't, I think, a great example is the 26th of January. What, what is that and who, what, what, does, what does that mean to Australians? First Nations, non-First non, uh, non Nations as well. So um, 
I think going back to if there was ever to be a reparation scheme, there also has to be a, a owning of history and owning of the wrong that was done in the past as well, you know, and not just not just the stolen generation that was apologised for. Yeah. I'm still a long way from truly understanding how a pay the rent scheme could work in Australia. But Anaru gave me this advice. Within the international legal system, could I make a change? Could I could I do something? One person, you know what I mean? Oh yeah, I think I think there's a lot of. I mean, that's how it starts, right? With just individual choice to do something, and then you you don't do it alone. You join up with you know your your, your friends and colleagues and family, and then you, ultimately you do it, you know for your community. My personal opinion is that some kind of pay the rent scheme could work here in Australia, but this is just the beginning of my journey. But what I do know for sure is that the reconnecting, relearning, and empowering needs to continue. So let's keep having these conversations. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio with myself, Anya, and Zoya in the studio. That was um, an audio segment produced by BuzzFeed on paying the rent. Um, and we have a list of organisations that you can consider paying the rent to. These are all Victorian-based organisations, so um, it's not an exhaustive list, but it's a um, starting point to think about. The organisations that we have on the list are Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance, Grandmothers Against Removals, Jabbarang Protection Embassy, Seed Indigenous Youth Climate Network, Koori Youth Council, JIRA, which consists of the Aboriginal Women's Legal Service and other sorts of um, non-legal holistic support services, Black Rainbow, an organisation for LGBTQIA plus Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the Rumbalara Aboriginal Cooperative, Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. They also have a law reform program, which is, um, and they do great um, strategic litigation sort of stuff, so any funds towards that organisation is really helpful. The Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency and the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service. This is not an exhaustive list, of course. Um, there are lots of other organisations that could really do with some of your funds, and it's one way to pay the rent. Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing whitefellas learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. The time is 7.38. We just heard a series of interviews about paying, paying the rent. Uh, obviously a very pertinent thing always, but especially when we consider that Invasion Day is coming up. So it's, it's you know, as Anya was saying before, it's, it's a really important and vital thing that we should all be doing. Coming up now, we have another double interview. Last week, I got to do a double interview. This week, I get to do a double interview. I love them. It's so much fun. It means I get to talk less, which everyone knows is always a good thing. If Zoya talks less, it means the world is in a good place. So, 
As we mentioned earlier in the show, it is midsummer. There's lots of great things going on. The carnival opened it up on the weekend. The rain held off for the carnival. So, you know, the uh, world is smiling on us for midsummer, I hope. Maybe, maybe we'll have a little reprieve from everything and get to instead look at fun, fun queer things. So there's a few different events going on for Midsummer, as always, and we are going to talk about one of those today, which is a collaboration uh, with Queer Space. So this is also our monthly Queer Space slot as well. We are killing two birds with one stone. It's great. So on the line, we have Kate Ford, General Manager um, of Queer Space. Uh, good morning, Kate. How are you? Morning, Zoe. Good, thanks. <laughs> uh, and in the studio, which again, very exciting, we have an in-studio guest. Um, <laughs> we have uh, a spoken word poet, Tabani. How are you? I'm fantastic. <laughs> it's very exciting. I wasn't expecting Tabani to come in, and then I go out to do a coffee run, and there they are standing outside the door, and I was like, this is amazing. There's a person in the studio. I'm really excited. I'm also excited to have you on the line as well, Kate. So, you know, it's okay. I'm not playing favourites here. <laughs> you can. It's all right. <laughs> so just uh, to begin with, I might just ask um, each of you to kind of give me a little rundown on uh, who you are and what you do. So, Kate, why don't we start with you? Sure. So, um, Queer Space is a health and wellbeing service that um, is for LGBTIQ plus uh, community, family, individuals, etc. And we do an annual uh, midsummer uh, event, whether it's, you know, a carnival or actually putting on an event. So this year we've uh, done a couple of events um, to, uh, in, in collaboration with a program internal to Queer Space, which is a mentoring program, um, which is really trying to um, build community by linking people in with other people um, in a kind of loose mentoring relationship. So not as, um, you know, not as sort of tightly as, you know, here's the person who knows, here's the person who doesn't know, but um, just building community through building relationships. So we're, we're basically trying to build health and well-being by working at all levels, individual, family, community. So that's our job. Mm. <laughs> a great job and a really, really vital job. Um, Tabani, how, who are you? What do you do? Mm -hmm. Tell me about yourself. Well, I guess I'm coming in from the Melbourne spoken word side of it. I myself am a poet and I'm pretty heavily involved in the scene. So I guess I'm a strong believer in the power of stories. And I feel like the Melbourne spoken word community is, it's one of the driving forces in Melbourne mm. of giving a voice to the voiceless and kind of letting people have the space to tell their stories. Mm. So we're kind of like talking around this and teasing what is mm. what is happening at this at this magical event. So um, as part of Midsummer, which we know is like the big queer carnival that we have every year here in Melbourne, it's our answer to Mardi Gras. Um, uh, let's not mention Sydney, our, 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 uh, our rivals and enemies. No, they don't exist. Um, <laughs> um, there are obviously a variety of different events. So it sounds like this event is a collaboration between Queer Space and Melbourne Spoken Word. Um, Kate, why don't you kind of outline what exactly is this event? Sure. So there's, there are two events. Um, oh, okay. There's one is called A Place at the Table, um, 
news stories of the familiar. That's the one that Tabani is emceeing. That's the one that came particularly from our mentoring program. So we do a lot of work with uh, young trans and gender diverse people and their families to kind of build a family understanding of essentially of being queered um, by, you know, a, a trans and gender diverse person being in your family and then what does the family do with that so we decided basically that our you know our work um, with individuals and families had another dimension to it which is you know what do people uh, do with their stories and how do, how do we build family relationships and community connection through stories so that was basically the genesis of that and our mentoring program brings together um, families who've had um, these experiences, some at the beginning, some, you know, at the uh, kind of at the end of that journey, if you like. Um, so it's an attempt to sort of bring people together to share stories about what it's like to um, do gender in that way. And then the other one is called Doing Gender, um, Not Having It Done to You. And it's basically about um, how you... Um, how we think about gender in the world we're in at the moment and how we experience gender in that world and the stories that we tell each other. So again, like Queer Space is working with individuals who come in with their their gender questions and we're basically trying to take that uh, out into um, a kind of storytelling mode really to, as part of empowering and in a way poeticising gender, taking it out of the sort of, um, you know, the the... The definitional, if you like, the you know, <laughs> the sort of mania for who is what. I don't know if that makes sense, but <laughs> no, it, it definitely does. And and on that note, Tabani, like you you mentioned about the the power of of stories. Why is it? Do you, do you think that spoken word or storytelling more broadly is so powerful? Like, why do you love it so much? I think for me, it's particularly the history of it because I think oral tradition and storytelling, it's something that's been integral to society for countless generations, like since the inception of time. Mm. We've always been storytellers. And I feel like as as a poet, that term was something that kind of has gone through its troughs and mm. dips and bases. It was lost for a time and people are like, oh, there are no more poets. Poetry is no longer a thing. Um, and I think with spoken word, it's kind of a, a resurgence of not only the poet, but the ability for the individual to kind of reclaim their narrative. Mm. And I think there's so much power in taking your story and taking ownership and sharing it. I feel like for me, one of the most empowering thing is finding relatability with other people mm. and i get that from hearing other people's stories and finding out that oh it's not just me like i'm i'm not alone in whatever journey i'm on it's like there's another people another person who experiences what i'm experiencing and feels the same things that i'm feeling absolutely so kind of bringing to using using emotion and and connection and empathy to really build understanding and and Mm. Oh, it's, oh, I really want to go to this. This sounds fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's also that I, I love what Tabani said because um, it's about the power of the word. And I think, I guess the reason Queer Space is interested in this is like we therapeutically we work with the power of the word, but there's something about 
um, sharing it with others, which helps you to claim the space of your own personhood. You know, mm. it, you, you go out there with your story and you make a place for yourself in the world. And I guess that's um, that's incredibly empowering, but it's also, mm. it changes the culture because if you can find a platform or a place to speak your own experience, then we can actually change the, the way that, um, say, gender or sexuality or, or, or forms of difference are heard in the world. You know, we can actually change it through story, and that's a really remarkable thing. That's, yeah, that's such that's a powerful cool. idea, absolutely. Um, talking about the events themselves, um, Kate, you mentioned that, that it's coming from this mentoring program. Who yeah. the, some of the speakers? Can you tell us a little bit about them? It sounds like there might be some younger people involved and and um, potentially families. Like sort of who 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 is who yeah. Is speaking? Well, in in the um, a place at the table, which is the one on the twenty third of January, um, I think there are about ten people on the run sheet. I think the youngest is eleven, and they're speaking um, with their mum. I think um, and. You know, there's been some effort gone into crafting the stories. We we um, we gave people the opportunity early on to work with um, some creative writing tutors, and some people were able to take that opportunity and do some crafting of the stories. And other people have come in uh, at a later point because basically people are coming not just from our mentoring program, but from our client base and from quiz base mailing lists. And basically, we've sort of pulled together. Um, people from our communities basically and put everyone in together and it, so it's basically anyone who wants to tell a story which um, centers on some of these questions about coming out or gender or um, being queer or any of that sort of stuff so it's um and it's basically people who feel that that's their they want to have a go at that at sharing their story some of them are very very short and some of them are you know sort of 10 minutes so yeah Oh, that sounds like a, a really, really great mix um, of, of people and types. It sounds like a lovely community event. Mm, um, so it is. it's definitely, yeah. definitely one that, that I was saying uh, while um, we were off air, I was having a chat with uh, Tabani and Anya and saying that I never go to anything for Midsummer. I'm really, really bad at it. But now, now I've got two events yes. I think I definitely have to go to. These sound, yeah. sound really, 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 really fantastic. Um, so the... Events themselves, can you just give me a little bit um, on the details of it? So when are they? How can people get yep. tickets? When, where, how can people get tickets? Yeah, so A Place at the Table is the first one. Uh, that's on the 23rd of January, 6 o'clock, Hares and Hyenas. You can get tickets from midsummer.org.au or you can ring Queerspace on 9663-6733. Uh, it's also on Facebook but I mm -hmm. neglected to find out how you do that. I'm not very good at <laughs> Facebook. Um, so the other one is, uh, the second one is doing gender, uh, not having it done to you. That's on the 29th of January at 7.30 till 10.30. That one is also hares and hyenas, and it's 18 and over. So the, a place at the table, the first one, suitable for all ages, doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are, but the other one is 18 plus. All right, great. Sounds like a... And that's emceed by Charlotte Wood, um, to the doing gender one. Okay, great. Um, Tabani, do you have any other must-sees for Midsummer? do you think? 
Not at the moment. <laughs> I'm one of those people that's like, I want to do everything and then end up doing nothing. <laughs> you kind of get paralyzed by by the choice. By the right? choice. Yeah. I look at the calendar and I'm like, oh god, there's just no. Someone just take me to something. Yeah. I just sort of. <laughs> And there we go. Look, doing radio has made me find two things to go to already. Mm. And um, yeah, I'm just hoping someone else just kind of comes along and bullies me into something. So that's 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 your midsummer technique. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Great. Well, if people want to bully you to go to events, how can they get in touch with you through social media or follow you and find out about your spoken wordness? Do you do you have a presence? I do. Instagram <laughs> is my primary outlet. <laughs> um, so you can find me on Instagram at tabani.chuma so at t-h-a-b-a-n-i dot t-s-h-u-m-a that's great and I think people can you know find out some more about about your poetry and and I think that'll be um yeah really really awesome I'm really excited about this event this sounds really right up my street and I'm sure Mm. up the street of many other people listening so that's a place at the table and doing gender not having it done to you. That's on the 23rd of January and the 29th of January, respectively, um, both at Hairs and Hyenas. So that's nice. Yeah, ticket easy prices. Combo. I forgot to say, oh, of course. ticket prices, $10 concession, $15 for single. And then for the place at the table one, oh, no, actually for both maybe, $20 for a family of four, however you define family. It's lovely. Mm. Oh, how have you defined family? That makes Love me that. Oh, That's a really, really lovely place to uh, yeah. to end, I think. Um, Tabani and Kate, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today. Thanks, thank Tabani. Bye. The Setting Sun Film Festival in Melbourne's West is calling for entries until 31st of January. Enter your short or feature film into our international festival with the cult following and see your film screen at Yarraville's Art Deco Sun Theatre in May. The festival runs for seven days and features a culturally diverse program that includes Australia's first female filmmakers program and a wide range of categories and genres. Lots of prizes to win. All details on our website, settingsun.com.au. The Setting Sun Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. listening to summer programming on 3CR. To find out more about our summer specials, go to 3cr.org.au. Six years I've been in Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. 
But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03-9419-8377. Australia does not exist. Australia not exist. Australia does not exist. Australia does not exist. Oh, oh, oh. 1788 came upon this land. Washed into the bay, stepped upon sacred sands. Didn't recognize there was governance at hand. Laws and conditions not based upon demands. Tribes, clans, and families in line with sacred chants. Song lines, stories, blessing, woman, child, and man. Stars, constellations, formulating plants. Bountiful planes of medicinal plants. Spouse beyond the physical, beating our dents. None of this dreaming, unfolded by chance. But they didn't see this majesty right before their eyes. Liberal us as savages and plotted out the minds took our star formations to represent their plot now realize the natural essence brought into those knots busy painting laws to sidestep our rocks deny our very ways to be brought out of sight out of mind spotted laws this landscape never defined in the previous 60,000 plus years of time that said Australia still a scene of crime when they push aside the matters and it's blind eating the blind Australia does not exist what they be selling is men Take that land, take it for our own. Those who take a stand will kneel before the throne, kneel before the crown. Hands on the ground, then we'll take all the kids. Hush, don't make a sound, nothing but savages. We'll show them how they're supposed to live, and if they don't assimilate, I guess we'll have to demonstrate our superiority in every single way. And remind them how we've conquered them every single day. And what better way to do this than to give this land a name? Australia, yeah, the great land that was claimed. Man, it ain't gonna work Watch us grow like flowers If we come from the dirt The earth runs deep Our peep came Just to reframe The pictures of the past So my people know where we came from We've been here all along See, Australia don't exist Just another damn man Australia does not exist What they be selling is men Australia does not exist But they keep on trying to tell
what they try to make it seem. Australia does not exist. Just a spray painting pictures to try painting you picture to evade the true identity of this land. It is built on legislations and false formations without true jurisdiction propagated through mass manipulation of populations and resources, genocidal policy and forces. Born in blood of our ancestors, massacres. But still sacred spirit here. Breathe in the air, true essence delivered from our mother's womb and hands. It's always was, and always will be a land of countless indigenous nations. None of which are called Australia. to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. The time is 8 a.m. We just heard um, Australia Does Not Exist by... Dreaming Now. By Dreaming Now, mm. um, who also has been doing some really great uh, fundraisers around the bushfires and various other things. I highly recommend following them on, uh, on Instagram. Uh, we follow them on Tuesday Breakfast, so you can just go into our followed and find them. It's nice and easy. Um, speaking of bushfires, uh, <laughs> the word on, on everybody's lips—that's <laughs> that's my segue. Yes, yes. I look. I, I thought it was quite good. I was like, look, I've got a little thing happening there, connecting things in. Fine, whatever. We actually haven't had any be mean to be mean to each other moments on the show yet today. So I think that was delightfully We're never appropriate. mean to each other. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> No, it's just rays of sunshine constantly. We're all <laughs> lifting each other up. Weirdly enough, we are we we rib each other on the show and on air all the time. But then our little chat group for the uh, for the radio show is just full of joy and sunshine and puppies and lifting each other up and it's it's the most loving thing I've ever come across like honestly when I started on the show and I was put into the magical Tuesday breakfast chat group I was like who are these people they're just so nice everyone's just so supportive all the time it's incredible like honestly if if you achieve anything in life it's to end up in the Tuesday breakfast chat group it'll 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 you know really give you a a good boost every day and then you come on air with them and then they just lay into you (laughs) Giggle at you. I've got Anya just looking at me, just like, Jesus Christ. Anyway, Diane. Anyway, <laughs> that was my monologue. Um, in the studio, we have um, Madison Griffiths, who is a presenter on freedom of species. And so my speaking of bushfires was that our conversation is going to be bushfire related. Good yes. morning, Madison. How good are you? morning. I'm good. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, so we've had you on the show a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously, as I said, you have another show on 3CR. Mm-hmm. You are sort of relatively in, in and out of uh, 3CR building, it seems, quite a bit. So... For people who don't know, why don't you let us know a little bit about you? Who are you? So I am a producer and a writer from Melbourne. Um, I produce a podcast called Tender, which is all about 
um, what happens once people leave abusive relationships. Um, so I produce that with Broadwave, which is a local production group, and I write mainly about issues concerning gender, um, but also I do a little bit of work on um, veganism and animal liberation. Yeah, um, so that's kind of the space that we're going to be talking yeah. about today. Totally. Um, so what is, you know, what what kind of... Um, I, I mentioned that we're going to be talking about the bushfires mm. um, and kind of animal rights and that kind of thing. Um, kind of around this space, what what is kind of one of the key issues around animal welfare? Yeah, I mean, you know, apart from the, the obvious devastating um, effects of climate change and the climate change crisis and what that has done for um, loss of entire species of, of Australian animals, birds, wildlife... Um, it has been really interesting to notice a real, uh, I guess, cognitive dissonance when it comes to the treatment of some animals um, or the public mourning of some animals as opposed to others. And whilst it is quite nuanced um, and complex, it is also quite distracting um, the way certain animals are mourned based on what they offer people mm. um, and the way certain animals that don't necessarily, you know, offer people much and mourned comparatively. Yeah. Can you kind of give us some examples of that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Siobhan O'Sullivan actually wrote an incredible article for ABC, um, which was called, I think, The Animals We Care About and the Animals We Don't. And she went into um, how inconsistent it is that the media uh, captures, you know, the, the image of the... If anything, we are empathising with the, you know, with the farmer and the image of the farmer having to kill his livestock, um, which is a word that I, I try not to use, but for the sake of an argument, I'm going to use livestock to refer to cows, sheep, chickens, um, farmed animals. Um, and then when it comes to the, the representation of wildlife, like be it koalas and kangaroos and whatnot, um, it is people are able to grieve in and of themselves the, the loss of these animals um, as what it means as, as a holistic thing. Um, and it is quite... It is quite difficult to, to watch. I mean, whilst it is fraught with complexity and nuance um, and it has a lot to do with, you know, a variety of different things that why certain animals matter more than others generally, um, according to humans, it is, um, it is quite obvious when we look at the, the death toll that's occurring. Mm, so it's almost like the mourning of animals that we um, only keep alive um, as a means to sort of perpetuate the industrial agricultural mm-hmm. complex we can only mourn them through the um, through the mediation of the impact on the farmers Entirely. the impact on their livelihood so it's almost as though we'd be mourning the same if it was a person who you know in the same way that a person loses their house and their belongings which of course is heartbreaking yes but we're mourning for that person we're not mourning for the house absolutely it's the same thing with these animals we're not mourning for the animals we're mourning for for the person, whereas a, a you know cute koala or something like mm. that, that's that's mournable. Well, I that's the, that's the other thing too that I find really really quite interesting is a lot of people that I've seen um, that are quite you know invested in the in the white Australian dream or the white Australian archetype. Um, I I want to look into you know the, their grief for Australian symbology, so mm. the grief for the emu, the grief for the kangaroo, the koala, and I think that has a lot to do with. Um, that, that, that represents a loss of Australian novelty and Australian um, imagery. So yeah. is, there is something quite nationalistic about that type of grieving, mm. which I really want to interrogate um, more so. Yeah, absolutely. So it's almost like the sort of introduced or imposed 
species brought in by colonialism. Yeah. That's, not, that's, that's again, not mournable because it doesn't represent a certain nationalistic view, whereas Absolutely. the farmer is a nationalistic yes. thing. The sheep isn't, but the farmer, the farmer is. itself is. Yeah. And, you know, the romanticised image of the ideal white Australian lifestyle does involve the consumption of animals. Mm. It really does. You know, when you, when you look at how um, native animals serve, you know, the white Australian um, demographic, it's just symbols or nods to, to this kind of waltzing Matilda-esque um, chip on the shoulder, whereas, you know, sheep are too in, in much the same way, just much more violently and on, you know, Australia Day uh, events, which is yeah. infuriating in and of itself. But, yeah, it is quite quite interesting how, um, uh, yeah, how complex that yeah. morning is. Yeah. I actually find that really, really interesting. When you, when you were saying that, I was kind of thinking where um like you said about about like invasion day and mm. um you know there's always that always, always the lamb ad right always the lamb around ad. around invasion day and it's almost like the symbol the animal only becomes a symbol once it's dead yes entirely <laughs> and and there to be consumed and taken away from its actual kind of living structure it's like the the, the lamb ad doesn't actually have people walking around with little baby lamb no 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 not at all <laughs> it has to be completely devoid of any connection up to to its its physicality and its and its you know liveness well I yeah suppose. and the, and the ingredients of of the way that day um which is so inherently violent as we all know um and deeply just awful the way that day is sort of marketed um you know we have the the dead dead lamb and this kind of garish um australiana uh outfits that are you know in all of the shops and you know uh kangaroos sort of punching on and and holding tinnies and that sort of imagery and it's really it's it's interesting the way these sort of um very uh australian you know individuals in and of themselves that that live on this land uh, appropriated by this sort of romantic image of what they what they serve, mm. which is really quite um quite complex. And I mean, it is it is very nuanced. And I want to acknowledge, you know, that this is a um, more symbolic analysis. And there are an incredible amount of people that are doing the work out there and saving these animals. And I'm mm. I'm here sitting on radio complaining about waking up early, um, being like, oh, the way we grieve these animals is you know is problematic. But it it, it is something that I um. Anything that's sort of tied to that white Australian dream mm. um, is something I find really worth interrogating leading into the climate change crisis and what motivates yeah. us and what doesn't. Well, I guess it sort of feeds into what we're going to prioritise and what we're not going to prioritise when when push comes to shove, I suppose. Absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, that made me think about... Um, I saw this, it's kind of vaguely unrelated, but it is kind of related. This is where my brain goes. <laughs> but there was an article recently um, that was showing that the 22 richest men in the world are richer than all the women in Africa combined. Wow. Um, because of the amount of unpaid domestic labor. So the unpaid domestic labor of women is actually worth more than the global tech industry. Wow. Um, and that's the women in Africa alone. And the, what the point I'm saying this is because the article was saying that as the climate crisis continues, these separations are become, going to become even more stark. Yes. And the um, rise in unpaid labor and the oppression of women is going to increase even further. And I think that kind of feeds into as well of like, how are we going to prioritize, um, you know, animal, you know, other animals and that kind of thing. And, and what, what are we going to value as this comes along? Absolutely. Um, it's, it's exactly in the same vein, obviously, like, patriarchy colonialism um mm. the meat industry it's all 
Oh, entirely. It's all totally interconnected. Absolutely. So it's it's kind of... Well, that's a really light-hearted thing to be thinking about, <laughs> isn't it? What are we doing? Oh, no. Death <laughs> and destruction on a Tuesday morning. But, I mean, you know, when it was, like you said before, when push comes to shove, and push has come to shove. So uh, we, are at a, we are at a place now where it is, um, you know, we can't sort of avoid that that kind of death anymore yeah. it is quite terrifying and um, yeah we definitely need to be start thinking about it not uh, to say the least about you know the impact of the um you know animal industry um on the climate and yeah just how eating meat and eating animal products in general is just so damaging Absolutely. to the environment i mean that's that's a whole other conversation to be yeah. had but um on freedom of species. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So you've You'll been, find those sort of conversations. So coming up um, this Sunday on freedom of species is, um, what are you going to be talking about? Well, uh, there's no programming this Sunday because of the event being Invasion Day. Oh, of course. Um, so we won't be talking um, then. And I'm not entirely sure what we're going to be talking about the following <laughs> week. Um, but give us some time. We all have a lot of ideas. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a great little show. It's on between 1 and 2 p.m. on Sundays. That sounds great. Well, Madison Griffith, thank you so much for coming in to speak to us once again. I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more from you soon. <laughs> thank, thank you, you. so much. Yalakut Willamnagi, Australia's First Nations Festival, returns Saturday, February 1st with soulful live music and free family entertainment. Get your funk on to Emma Donovan and the Putbacks, plus Coloured Stone, Kian, the Struggling Kings, Kihu and loads more music from the finest First Nations artists in Australia. Eat and browse your way through market stalls or get hands-on at the many workshops and activities on offer. Yalakut Willamnagi proudly celebrates Australia's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures across one day where everyone is welcome. Head to ywnf.com.au for details. City of Port Phillip and Yalakut Willamnagi, 3CR supporters. Wear your Radical Radio colours in one of 3CR's new T-shirts. The bright new design comes straight from this year's popular Radiothon poster designed by Aisha Tufa. T-shirts cost $30 to pick up or $37 with postage. So drop into the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Call 9419-8377 to place your order. Or buy one online at 3cr.org.au slash shop. 3CR Radical Radio T-shirts. Get one one now. to summer programming on 3CR. To find out more about our summer specials, go to 3cr.org.au. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio with myself, Anya, and Zoya. We just heard Zoya and Madison Griffiths in conversation about the bushfire crisis. And sort of what animals get mourned and what animals don't and its connection with 
nationalism, mm. Invasion Day. It was it was really really interesting. Absolutely fascinating. Um, and as listeners probably know, this Sunday is Invasion Day, and Three um, CR is doing a special programming the whole day related to Invasion Day. So. Highly encourage you to tune in. Um, but after Tuesday breakfast on Accent of Women, um, there's actually a little. Um, the, the feature is on why we shouldn't be celebrating "quote unquote" Australia Day, and um, Accent of Women today features Celeste Little and Kim Bullimore on on that sort of um, understanding of why Australia Day "quote unquote" is not worth um, celebrating and what we can do instead. So we thought we'll just play you a short snippet of what that show is about and then um, we'll be back. You might ask why someone like me, an Aboriginal woman who lives in Melbourne, who has all these fancy bits of paper next to her name and who is clearly doing okay, feels passionate enough about Invasion Day to call a rally and take a stand. For starters, I'm sick to death of the historical erasure which has to happen in this country for Australia Day festivities to go ahead. To me, Australia Day has always been Invasion Day and it was a day of protest when I was growing up. We don't celebrate Australia Day in this country because we're apparently a unified multicultural society who have a right to be proud of what we've achieved. We celebrate it because we are content to ignore the declaration of terra nullius and the crimes which have been perpetuated against Indigenous people beyond this point. Because this country is okay with denying frontier wars took place. They're okay with forgetting the massacres. They're okay with forgetting the slavery, the stealing of children, the setting up of concentration camps and missions. They're fine with the fact that Aboriginal people have been forced to live under a foreign regime that they never consented to, nor has that regime ever come to the table to negotiate agreement. Under capitalism, the system that we live under is actually inherently racist. It actually pits people against each other in order to advance capitalism and the wealth and power of small percentage people over the majority of us, whether we be black, white or whatever. So, um, I mean, if we look at the the global scale of of rising populism and nationalism, I mean, part of this is, uh, well, not part, but it is inherently a result of the failure of capitalism and it's a, a result of the failure of mainstream political parties under capitalism, that people have become so disenfranchised, disillusioned, that they've moved away from that. So it makes it very easy for populist people like Trump or for um, Pauline Hanson who position themselves as somehow being like ordinary people when, you know, people like Trump is a multimillionaire. They position themselves as being uh, part of the disenfranchised, that people uh, are looking for something to to help them... uh, I suppose, give expression to that. But of course, then there's also under the current of that is that there's, you know, out and out racists, for example, which Hanson is, uh, who want to take advantage of that disillusionment and that disenfranchisement of ordinary people. And they want to be able to push their own agenda to do that. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. That was a short snippet of what to expect next on Accent of Women. So, yeah, how are we going? 
how are we going for <laughs> what just generally in life? just generally yeah <laughs> that actually that was a really really interesting snippet and it sounds like the next the the accident of women is going to be mm. a really really good episode so i highly recommend sticking around and tuning into that in about 10 minutes time mm. um just for the end of the show in the last 10 minutes i suppose we've kind of touched on um you know talking about like midsummer and that kind of thing and, and i do know that uh when i did go to the carnival last last year um mm. quite a lot of like corporations and that kind of thing especially like say mardi gras is really big for it the mardi gras parade yeah, yeah, yeah. heaps of corporations involved in it i feel like the parade here is slightly less mm. slightly less kind of commercial but um it's definitely something that 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 happens in the world this connection between corporations and queer politics and and that kind of thing and and some not not particularly great ways in which corporations latch on to queer issues i suppose um and so i thought we you know um we thought we'd kind of have a bit of a chat about that and and look into that so we're going to kick it off with a really interesting video from the uk talking about this issue which is called pink washing which will explain it far better than i just did where i just go corporations not doing great things that's <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty much the vibe of the video though it is very uk centric this video um, but it gives you a general understanding of what pinkwashing and homonationalism is. And it's a bit of a teaser for next week's show, Ooh. which uh, I don't want to spoil um, the show yet. I'm excited. Slash, have we even organized the interview? But we'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> Something's going to happen next week. <laughs> but in the meantime, here's a video on pinkwashing. Hi, I'm Sean Fay, and this is Sean This Way. And in this video, I'm going to be asking whether or not the gay rights movement has sold out to capitalism, specifically by considering a concept called pinkwashing. Pinkwashing is a combination of the word pink, which someone, quite possibly Hitler, decided should represent gay people, and the word whitewashing. It has come to describe a process by which conservative and capitalist institutions profess support for lesbian and gay rights in order to look progressive, modern and tolerant. Is there a problem with this? We're about to enter Pride season, which will see marches and celebrations across the country dedicated to celebrating LGBT people. In London, gay police officers will march in uniform and the red arrows will fly overhead in a statement of support for LGBT people. There will be people who will see this as a good thing. Surely a modern gay rights movement should support gay people in all parts of public life including these most traditional and powerful of British institutions. It's a good thing that we have openly gay police officers and soldiers. The gay rights movement is all about acceptance and inclusion, right? The problem with this fixation on inclusion at all costs is that it's somewhat of a Faustian pact. Some queers, most notably the white middle-class gay men in the community, are offered the opportunity to partake in public life. You can get married, you can still rise to the top of your profession, and you can have various legal rights afforded to you. In return, you must not question these institutions any further, and you also must shut up the more troublesome elements of your community too. So, in recent years, Pride in London has been sponsored by Barclays Bank, an institution which has been complicit in driving up global food prices. Barclays also holds a 4.25% shareholding in arms dealer BAE Systems. 
BAE Systems itself has a presence in the Pride March in order to showcase its credentials as an LGBT-friendly employer. However, as of 2016, BAE Systems has sold arms to at least 13 sovereign powers known to be committing homophobic and transphobic human rights violations against their own citizens. What is there to be proud of here? Pinkwashing is a PR strategy which is designed to conceal distressing realities and uncomfortable truths. It isolates sexuality from class, race, nationality, religion and gender in order to tell us that equality is possible for all, which is a nonsense under free market capitalism. Whether it's a limited edition of absolute vodka or a rainbow filter on your Facebook profile picture, the message being sold is a deceptive one to straight and queer people alike. Don't question the status quo. Everyone's life is improving. Things are progressing for everyone. And, just like most political ideologies, this pink-washed narrative of progress needs its own enemies. In her 2007 work, Terrorist Assemblages, the American academic Jasper Poir coined the term homo-nationalism. What she used it to describe was a process that occurred in American politics after 9-11. She explains that LGBT rights became a way for the West to demonstrate its civilization and humanity in contrast to the barbarism and homophobia of Islamism in the Middle East. This simplistic narrative is easy to buy into. It is also untrue. Prisoners were still barbarically tortured by the American government at Guantanamo, and there are queer Muslims fighting for liberation in the Middle East and across the world. Racist concepts like homo-nationalism create false binaries. Gay and Muslim become opposites, for example, and Western and queer become synonymous. And these ideas can then be used to generate public support in the West for violent programs of drone strikes, wars and imperialism. So what can be done about this? Well, of course, we can't simply become separatists. Sometimes pragmatism demands the aid of powerful institutions in order to help our voices be heard and to help the more vulnerable in the LGBT community. But what this should never come without is an alert suspicion to those who invite us over to sit with them. What do they want from us? Who in our own community will we have to step over to get it? Will it help them more than it helps us? Political partnership can achieve great things, but sometimes it is necessary to bite the hand that tries to feed us. After years of oppression, it can feel nice to be the popular girl, but there's a heavy price to be paid for being capitalism's sassy best friend. Let me know how you feel about Pride in 2016. You're here, you're queer, are you over it? Let me know in the comments below. Tweet me. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio with Zoya and myself, Anya. That was a short audio on gay pride and capitalism. What is pinkwashing? Which is something we've talked to death about on Tuesday Breakfast before. Yeah, but I think it's something we still need but to kind of... It's always worth remembering. Absolutely, especially especially at this time of year with all the different pride events that, that are happening, um, you know, with Pride Month coming up in... in June so I mean you know that's that's in the middle of the year but it's always important to to think about stuff like this because it really it really is it's just such a frustrating mm. thing it's such a frustrating thing when you just think about the history of the oppression of queer people and then all of a sudden capitalism goes no you lot are right actually because we can make some money off you so yeah. and we did talk a little bit about it um 
off air, Zoya, about, you know, Midsummer this year mm-hmm. and why a lot of queers actually didn't end up going because of the increased presence of all these, you know, big corporations, but also um, organizations like Victoria Police, who, you know, we've always had a fraught relationship with. And for a lot of communities, it's still a very difficult place to be in. Yeah. And it effectively shuts down, shuts off, you know, people of color from attending and feeling yeah. safe in these spaces. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I think I it also makes me kind of think about, you know, with a lot of the, you know, I feel like Pride events... It's 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 a really really great thing and a really important thing that we try to be as you know we, we are joyous we celebrate like activism through pleasure and through fun and whatever like that's that's a really really important thing but with the increasing engagement of corporations it's almost like it gets really flattened out and it can no longer also be connected with the streak of genuine activism with rising up mm. with you know if we think about the Stonewall riots mm. like that's pride celebrated or remembered mm. the Stonewall riots, yeah. which was the queer community and particularly the trans community, um, you know, trans people of colour, um, you know, um, gender, non, gender non-conforming people who were being so horrendously violated mm. by the police, Absolutely. rising up and saying yeah. it's, it's enough. And with the involvement of corporations, with the involvement of government, with the mm. involvement of police in these things, it's like we're just forgetting that history. Yeah, and I think it's a good, you know, it's a good reminder that while inclusion is good and it is helpful for a lot of people, for young people especially, um, the fact is, you know, trans people of colour are still being murdered at alarming rates yeah. all over the world. Yeah. Um, there was that news article about that um, trans um, woman in Sydney who was murdered last week and, it, you know, it barely made a ripple in the media because it's still underrepresented and um, it's not something that we talk about. So while, of, while all of these things are happening in the queer community, it just seems a bit um, odd to to not, you know, even even talk about it and... Um, celebrate inclusion as if it has been achieved because yeah. it hasn't no it it, it it absolutely hasn't so that's a, a your <laughs> daily reminder from tuesday breakfast to yeah. um, <laughs> not be pink washed <laughs> um so that's the end of the show yeah yeah really great show really really interesting um you know touching on quite a few of the different things that i think uh uh often our big themes in Tuesday Breakfast. Mm. So thank you to to our guests. Yeah, thank you so much to our guests. So um, we had spoken word poet Tabani coming in, talking about a show that um, they are emceeing um, that is a collaboration between Melbourne Spoken Word and Queer Space. Mm -hmm. So we also had Kate Ford, the general manager of Queer Space, talking about that. Mm -hmm. Um, We spoke with Madison Griffiths, a presenter on Freedom of Species, um, and um, herself also a writer and a broadcaster uh, about why we mourn certain animals in the bushfire crisis and, and and not others. Um, we also had a nice little introduction and sting to uh, Accent of Women, which is going to be coming up shortly. And on top of that, we spoke about why it's so important, or played some audio about why it's so important that we uh, pay the rent. So up now, Accent of Women.